So hello, um, my name is Kechi Okuchi. I'm 26 years old. I just recently graduated with a bachelor's in economics and marketing in America in the University of St. Thomas in Houston. And I'm now currently working for a nonprofit organization in Houston called the um, Annang Legend Awards. Um, so December 10th is fast approaching. And uh, for the first time since the accident, the Sosolusu plane crash of 2005, of which I'm one of the two survivors, I'm actually going to be in Nigeria this year for the anniversary and the ceremony that they're gonna be hosting back home. So I'm really, it's kind of like a bittersweet feeling, but mostly I'm excited about going home at least, you know? And you know, every time this time of year comes around, I'm always kind of catapulted back to those memories and the events of that day, because it always just stays fresh in my mind. And you know, as December 10th rolls around every year, it's like it all comes back to me with like glaring clarity. You know, I remember that you know, I was 16 years old and um, I was in Luila Jesuit College back in Nigeria, Abuja Secondary School. And um, myself and 60 other students were going to be going back to the East for Christmas holidays. So we would board the same bus and then head to the airports and then we would you know, fly the same plane back to Potakot. So we did all that. We got on the bus, got to the airport, and then the flight was delayed, as usual, in Nigeria. So you know, we're just you know, at the airport, just lounging around, being silly, cracking jokes, and buying food from all the stalls that are usually in the lounge. And then the flight finally arrived, so we all boarded with several other passengers. There were 109 of us total, flight crew included. And um, the flight was uneventful for the most part. Nothing strange happened. I remember I was sitting in an aisle seat, and that was kind of weird because my mom usually books me a window seat. So I remember thinking that, you know, I didn't really like that. But um, my, one of my closest friends was actually right beside me on the other aisle seats. So we would talk during the flights and all that. And then it was like minutes to landing that the pilot made the announcement that we would be landing in Potakot Airport soon. And that was when things started to get really strange, you know. What you first think is turbulence starts acting like it's way more than turbulence, you know. And it was actually this lady at the back that kind of panicked everyone when she like made this, she like shouted like, is this plane trying to land? Like, so when she said that, everyone started freaking out. I couldn't see what was going on because I was in the aisle seats, which apparently turned out for the best because I really you know, don't want to be seeing what's going on like, from the window. But I remember just feeling so much shock and never really getting to the point of fear because I was just so stunned in that moment, like, is this actually happening right now? And I remember holding onto my friend's hand and she looked so afraid and you know, probably mirroring my expression. And I remember thinking, you know, we should probably pray or something. I didn't know what to, I mean, before I could even think about what prayer to say, there was this really loud, searing, like metal scraping against metal sound. And the next thing I know, I was waking up in a hospital in South Africa five weeks later. So um, what followed after that was just a series of uh, excruciating events that were probably the most painful moments of my life. You know, I won't sugarcoat it. You know, it was really painful. I spent four months in the ICU in South Africa and consecutive three in the ward. And then, you know, after the fourth month, they had to tell me that um, I was the only person who survived from my entire school. So that was just like a different level of pain that no amount of medication could actually take away. But um, with the amazing friends and family that surrounded me and my growing faith in God, you know, I was able to pull through that situation. And, you know, my mother deserves special mention here because she, before I even learned how to rely on God, she was my absolute rock at that moment. And, uh, you know, I went to the ward and then I was taken care of there. Mill Park Hospital was amazing. And then they flew me back to Nigeria where Shell took care of me for seven months before I was moved to um, America in 2007 for reconstructive surgery. And I've been there ever since. 
So um, my initial plan was actually, you know, before the accident, to graduate high school and go to LSE, you know, here in UK. That was my plan. I wanted to go there. I love economics. And uh, life happened. So I ended up in America, which is, you know, also has a pretty good school system. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, 2009, I, my dad was actually the one. He was like, you know, I'm noticing you're kind of restless these days. You know, what do you think? Are you feeling like, I mean, are you, are you feeling like up to school? I was like, you know what, that's actually a pretty good idea. So um, the school system, you know, in Galveston, in, in um, Texas, really bent over backwards to accommodate me. And, you know, I finished high school there, then I applied to universities there, got into a really amazing one that gave me a scholarship and paid for half my fees. And um, I graduated just this past May, you know, first in my class. And, <laughs> and, uh, thank you. and uh, I was even able to deliver the um, commencement speech at the graduating ceremony. So, like, it was just a combination of the entire um, ex uh, college experience, really. And I really felt standing on that stage, like all the other kids that passed away during that accident were just like right behind me. And I felt like I'd accomplished something like on their behalf. That's how I felt. <laughs> and you know, now I'm working for this nonprofit with this wonderful woman who, you know, she's like the epitome of what I want to be if I ever become like a director or a founder. And she, she has that, like the whole you know, vision of, you know, how people should see Africa as a whole, not just as a country, like we've been talking about all day about, it's not just about the strife and corruption, you know, we have a lot of amazing people in different countries in Africa and the world needs to know that side of Africa as well. And so she tries to create these events where people can, where she can promote the amazing accomplishments of distinguished Africans worldwide. And that's what she does in Houston and I'm helping her like do that. Um, I started working with her um, in September. So, you know, all this is really just a preamble to what I really wanna like talk about today. You see, um, Every time I, I've told this story like you know countless times, but it never gets monotonous to me because every time I tell this story, I seem to unlock like a different facet of like understanding about various things. I gain new perspectives. For instance, as I was coming up with this speech and I was you know, relaying the events of you know that fateful day to myself, I started to think about my family specifically, which I've never really done. I always talk about how they've been wonderful, which is true, but I've never really thought about them like as specifically as I did in that moment. And I started to think about how unique and amazing they are. And you know, when I talk to my friends, and you know, you, you talk to friends, you get more personal with them, you start telling them different things about your life. I started to realize that perhaps my family might just be a little bit unorthodox when it comes to the you know, average Nigerian family units. I'll explain. For instance, okay, we have this family chat on WhatsApp called Izinulo. And when I say family chats, I mean everybody. I mean my grandma, my grandpa, my aunts and uncles. <laughs> Like my mom and her, their, her siblings, their spouses, my cousins, everyone that has a cell phone pretty much. And on this chat, we talk about everything. We talk about our day, important events, we share pictures, we tell jokes, we tell each other, we talk about like our weird dreams that we have, you know, just any random thing, you know. And this isn't without precedence, you know, because growing up, I've always been really close to both sides of my family, you know, relatives on both sides, but more so with my moms. And I remember, you know, holidays growing up, you know, as a teenager and as a child, we would spend it in Lagos and, you know, during the weekends, my family would, we would congregate in my grandparents' house in Apapa in Lagos and, you know, all of us would just be like eating good food and watching movies, you know, playing games and stuff like that. That's just always, that's just been how we've been all the time, like since I remember. And um, over time though, you know, people kind of moved away and moved abroad and so my auntie, Auntie Loma, who's actually in the audience, she um, was the one that was like, you know what, let's have this family chat, you know, where we can just kind of maintain this bond that we've created over the years. And you know, as time passed, 
I started seeing Izinulo as this kind of you know, figurative extension of like my grandparents' house in Apapa. So anyway, this chat came up in conversation with my friends one day, and I remember two of them just looked at me like I was crazy, like family chats, like what are you? I mean, I understand siblings chats, you know, they were like, you know, I have my cousins and you know, my fellow siblings, same age people in the same chat, okay, that's fine, but you know, I had my parents and their parents and uncles and aunts, and it's just like, everybody just be quiet every day, <laughs> like, you know? So, you know, that kind of surprised me, not, not because I thought that every Nigerian family has a family chat or something, it's just, that had been my reality for so long that I, I kind of never thought about how maybe odd it might be. And so that kind of made me realize maybe my family might be a little bit different in the kind of relationship that we share. And I started to do something kind of spiritual in that bond, and especially the role that it played in my healing process as a Burns victim. And I started thinking deeper, like, you know, what, have, what other parts of my life have been influenced by this, this social, this relationship that I have with my family? And, you know, what about, you know, choices I make with, like, you know, friendship or, you know, romantic relationships or the potential of them thereof? Or, um, you know, my career, my education, my faith, day-to-day -day decisions. And I realized all of them, every single one of, like, parts of my life has been influenced by my family's relationship with me. And even if it's just in part, that special, like, that environment I was raised in and the home culture that my parents fostered really made my world larger. It gave me more paths for me to, you know, pick from. It, it gave me more choices to, to kind of pick from as well. I'll give an example of what I mean when I say that my world became larger. I'll take college, for example. Um, it's expensive, so unfortunately not everyone can go, but for those who do and who decide to, you know, take advantage of the opportunity, then you go in knowing that there are various courses to study from, you know, numerous choices, and there's like a lot of new interests to discover. But you know, growing up in Nigeria, as a Nigerian girl going to college, I have this, I come to college with this preconceived like, you know, notion, you know, belief bred by my society that there's only very few courses that matter in college. There's medicine, there's engineering, there's um, law. <laughs> and maybe some, maybe some parts of business like accounting and finance, thank you. So this is what I knew going into college, but I didn't care, not, like, not at all. Why? Because my family had, they did not care at all. Not just because my parents expressly told me that they didn't care as long as I was happy, but I grew up seeing the evidence of it around me. And my, my family spread out across the entire professional spectrum. You know, bakers, artists, designers, um, programmers, consultants, arts, um, pilots, like painters, well, like all over the place, like so diverse. Now, I'm not saying that having a close-knit family is like the only way to have more choices in life. And I'm not saying that my family is the only close family or op with an open relationship in the whole of Nigeria either. You know, I'm just, I'm just saying you know, from my experience, you know, which is all I can really um, talk based out of, yeah. It's just clear to me that the environment that in which we dwell kind of has this ripple effect on the extent of our individual worlds, you know? And college is just an example, but in a way it's like the perfect analogy for how suppressed, you know, that young people can be in our society and the narrow paths that society can create for us. And, you know, I, I just started thinking about this. Because a boy can have incredible artistic talents and terrible math skills, but then society would judge him based on how good he is at math. And then he would go on to, you know, call his, his talent a hobby. And then he would go on to college to pursue, you know, kind of find his worth in some subject that he has zero passion for, which would lead him down this path of complete unhappiness. 
Despite all this, there is really no narrower path than the one that a lot of my fellow female Nigerian friends end up on. There was this game that was trending like two years ago in Nigeria, and it was like this game where young girls could measure their bride price. <laughs> Do you based off certain criteria. And under education, your bride price increases when you finish high school. When you get your bachelor's, it goes up. Get your master's, it goes up more. And then you get your PhD and it just drops exponentially. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I was so confused and baffled. Like, oh, so there's such a thing as an overeducated, unmarried young woman. Like, what is that? And you know, I laughed because it was funny, yeah, but you know, I couldn't deny the the serious underlying metaphor for just how suppressed women can be in our society. Because how you have that boy that is being judged by his math skills, we have young girls that are kind of forced by societal traditions to believe that their entire worth can be based off something like marriage. And this is actually a worldwide phenomenon. This is not something that happens in only Nigeria. It's just, you know, I, I'm Nigerian and this is the environment I'm more familiar with. <laughs> so this is what I saw a lot of, you know, and I see with my friends. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, it just made me really think and, you know, a lot of my friends kind of go through this exact thing, you know? And the other day, I was, you know, kind of thinking about just what all this means, you know? And I was talking to a, so a friend, actually, I was writing this speech, and a friend called me, and it was so weird how the conversation kind of aligned to this, you know? And he called me, and he was talking about, talking about his sister, just graduated, just finished her master's, came back to Nigeria for a youth service. And he overheard his parents talking about how once she was done, they would start applying serious pressure on her to start finding a husband. And he, I could tell that he was so baffled himself because he was like, what about finding a job? Like, <laughs> what about, you know, what about finding some independence? Finding herself a little before jumping from like her father's house to her husband's house, so to speak. Here's what I believe. I believe that our parents want us to be happy, no doubt. And this is why they work so hard. Put us through primary school, secondary school, put us if they can afford it, to the best college they can possibly send us to, because they know that there's more out there in the world for us to like, know more than we, you know, what we already know. So we go out there and we get the education, we get global perspectives, new ways of thinking, but then we're still expected to come home and kind of you know, conform back to the old ways. And this happens a lot. You know? And you know, it's not just in Nigeria either. You know, it's just that, and I'm not saying that everybody that goes abroad and comes back faces all these problems, not even those who stay at home for higher education. It's just, that, it's just the fact that there's a higher number of young people who, especially girls, you know, who are kind of forced into these narrow paths with marriage more or less usually being the end goal, especially for a young girl, you know? So this kind of made me really think about this phrase that I learned in one class, um, Principles of Management. Incidentally, the most boring class I had while I was in UST. <laughs> And the professor was really awesome, but the material was just really dull to me. But um, in that class, ironically, she, she said something that always like, resonated with me, and it was, know thyself. Very simple Greek saying. She was on the board, and she went on to explain how the next few years of our lives, like in college especially, would, you know, every, every choice that we make will center around this phrase, knowing who you are and knowing yourself. And you know, I've always kind of felt like fewer things are more important than the, the journey of self-discovery and you know, trying to find out, find out what you like and what you're passionate about and, and then using it to do good things. So I think that's why I kind of connected with that phrase. Fun fact, my first test, I had a 67 in that, in that class and um, I knew that at that point, an A at the end of the semester was not possible, so I should at least work hard to maintain a B. So with, in the grace of God and you know, sheer cramming, I was able to, 
I got that B, but you know, I was able to kind of learn something about myself at the end, which was the fact that, you know, I would not be doing management as a major in college. It won't happen. So, you know, I just like how I was able to apply what I learned, like that whole know thyself theme into that same class I learned it in. <laughs> but you know, here's the thing. I feel like when we're born, God gives us all these like paths before us. But then a lot of times society and our families can tend to close off some of these paths, even though they mean well. But you know, just imagine if every young person, every young girl was, was given the freedom to just explore her true passions without the burden of expectation or direction. You know, I feel like a new, different society would definitely emerge. You know, if every young person was able to just go out there and use their full potential, you know, I mean, you know how people say that when you do what you love is not work. I feel like if everybody was actually doing this, like society would undoubtedly thrive, you know? And I've seen a lot of progress in this actually. You know, there's, I have like, you know, cause my stories are always about my friends. They, they're so interesting. So there's this friend I have, childhood friend. We grew up in Aba and um, her mom called my mom and was telling her about how, you know, their daughter wanted to study filmmaking in college. And uh, they told her, okay, that's great. You know, go and get a real degree first and then we'll talk. <laughs> So my friend went, got a law degree, then apparently she came home and like flung the degree into her parents' face. I was like, oh yeah, take your law degree, can I go and do filmmaking now, you know? And I just found it so funny, her mom was laughing on the phone and it was so hilarious to me, but I mean, see what happened here. Rather than telling the daughter, like, which nonsense filmmaking, I'm not gonna pay for that filmmaking nonsense. They, can't, they tried to meet her halfway and told her, you know, get a fallback degree and then we'll, you know, you can go ahead and pursue your less conventional passions. And from a parent's point of view, I can actually understand that because parents want their kids to be happy. They want, they want them to have stability, to make money, to be happy. But a lot of times, those three things don't always go hand in hand. And society, even our families, tend to like, focus a lot on the first two and forget how important happiness truly is. And I feel like this really ties in well with this whole you know, vision to reality thing because it's your, it's your passions that give rise to your vision that you have for your life. And if you're allowed to actually explore those visions, and explore those passions, then the change would just be so substantial. Because, you know, I just feel like we, we, a lot of us go abroad and study or wherever, and then we end up being so pigeonholed, no matter what it is that we do. And it just seems so sad to me, really. And anyway, I have another friend who studied, who wanted to study psychology in, um, from high school, all the way from LJC. And her dad told her to do, get a business degree first. So she suffered through four years of undergrad getting her business degree. She hated it. But now she's getting her PhD in psychology and she has a master's in criminology under her belt. And her vision for her life is to go back to Nigeria one day, start an organization where you know, she talks about how like, to promote the health of, the, I'm sorry, the, the importance of psychological health in you know, people in Nigeria, especially with this whole Boko Haram thing. There's a lot of displaced um, refugees all over the place that you know, people are not really focusing on the importance of their mental health. And the thing is, Everybody that grew up in Nigeria knows that there's a stigma about psychology. It's like, you know, when you say psychology is crazy person, you know, madness. <laughs> but there's more to it than that. And she's aware of this stigma and the obstacles, but it just drives her further, it makes her more determined to achieve what she wants to achieve. And this is what I'm talking about because she's, she's finally doing what she really wants to do and no obstacle looks too big to her. You know, and there's a lot of people that I feel like are so passionate about so many different things, more than medicine and law and engineering. But then it's just, there's no opportunity to explore those other passions, you know? Personally, for me, when it comes to the whole, you know, knowing myself and applying, you know, my vision to, um, to myself and making it something that's real, you know, it's been an obstacle course so far, but my way has been to rely solely on God. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, being a Christian is the only way to know who you are or find your vision. I'm just saying that's my way personally, because my faith is an integral part of me. 
And I try to include God in every single part of my life, in every decision I make, and um, more so after the accident, you know, for obvious reasons. And um, I've always felt like my family has been that backbone, helping me to grow. Whenever I get lost or confused, I'm confused about something, and I get confused a lot when it comes to my faith, because the Bible can be a little confusing sometimes, so I need some, <laughs> I need lots of guidance when it comes to that. And my family's always there, and I feel like God really gave me the family he did because he knew the kind of obstacles that I would face in my life one day. But because of them, I've never felt the need to conform. I've never felt like, you know, I need to make decisions based on my physical appearance. I've never felt like my scars define me. And I've never felt like, you know, anything that I have to do will have to do be dependent on, you know, what I physically look like. I make decisions on what I like, who I am, what I believe, and never on what I look like. And that's how I've been doing things. And, you know, and I really owe that to my family, for sure. And I just thank God for the family he gave me. And, you know, my vision is to one day, <laughs> it's more of a dream, really, to work in the UN. Just because I was recent, actually, that's been my dream since high school. But it was just kind of, okay, like economics, so just join the UN one day. But then a friend of mine recently, actually, two years ago, she started this um, charity in Nigeria where she started helping um, refugees and displaced people in Nigeria. And she actually just physically went to those places and took a lot of people, food, water, different things, and provided for them. And she just made it a thing. And this is something that's so simple. People can just carry extra food and clothes and take it to these places, but hardly anybody does it. You know, but she took the initiative and did it. And that just kind of really inspired me and you know, kind of rebirthed that, that verve to actually really work towards getting to the UN. So my next step after getting my bachelor's in economics is to get my master's. I already have acceptance into the graduate program, and I'm starting next fall. And that's where I really have. So, um, you know, that's my takeaway. And I know it's different for everyone. And I really pray that, you know, young people, especially young girls in whatever society they find themselves in, Nigerian or otherwise, will be able to one day also explore their own passions. You know, they're able to be free to, you know, pursue those talents that they have within them and find themselves while finding their vision. Thank you. Thank you.